all God's people said, amen and amen. Now if you would please take your Bible and open with me to Galatians chapter 5. We have circled back now after a few weeks off. I feel like it's been a little while. We had Ligonier Conference, then we had vacation, then we had Easter. And apparently I'm preaching from Job chapter 19 again this week. Uh, But we do have the outline and the title correct on the board. It is Galatians 5, though, our sermon text, verses 2 through 6. Galatians 5, verses 2 through 6. I remind you, this is God's word, and this is Paul's letter to the churches, the presbytery of Galatia, a group of churches in a geographic region. And he says in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. There was a time long ago when a Christian pastor named Martin of Tours began to do his missionary work in the known world. Tours was, of course, a nickname that he earned because, unlike most of the bishops of Martin's time, Martin did not choose to live in a palatial residence in the lap of luxury, but rather chose to tour with the Roman army, ministering and teaching the word of God to Roman soldiers and the people that they would conquer. And one day, upon approaching a city, Martin was met with a poor beggar whose heart uh, was bound to Martin's in some way, and Martin felt an affinity, felt sorry for this man. But Martin didn't have a coin or a cloth to give him to cover his nakedness as he shivered out in the cold. And it was frigid, and it was poor, and the, the beggar was begging alms, and so Martin did what he, what he thought he could. He, he pulled off of his cloak and... He pulled out a sword and he cut his cloak in half and kept one half for himself and gave the other half to the poor beggar that covered him halfway up and helped, I guess, a little bit with the cold. But that night it said that Martin had a dream in which he imagined the poor beggar in need being Christ himself. And awaking to consciousness, Martin was convicted That because if it had been Christ, he wanted to think he would have given him not just half of his cloak, but his whole cloak. Because Martin remembered that Christ had given him not just a half a salvation, not just a half a robe of righteousness, but a a full covering had Christ's gift to Martin, a, a full salvation to cover all of his nakedness and all of his shame and all of his sin. And so from then on, Martin resolved that for the rest of his life, he would give everything he had to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ had given everything for him. And after Martin was dead, his 
half cloak was kept as a kind of a souvenir by the church, a, a keepsake or a relic. And they even commissioned a, a special deacon called a Capolini to travel with the military, taking Martin's half cloak along as a reminder to preach a whole Christ for a whole salvation. And they say that the military Capolini is the origin of the term we use today to describe such a man, a military chaplain. We don't need some kind of a dream, do we? Or a, a relic or even a cloak cut in half to understand that Christ is a whole Savior or he is none at all. I hope you understand that. Your salvation is either 100% Jesus or you have no salvation. And we learned that in Galatians 5, 2 through 6. That is the emphasis of this unit of Scripture. For as we know well by now in our study of Galatians, there were false pastors and they were misleading the church, saying, in fact, that in order to be a true Christian, um, half of what you needed was Jesus and half of what you needed was to undergo the knife of circumcision a religious ritual, uh, some kind of a performance that obligated you to the keeping and observance of Old Testament ritualistic Jewish traditions. You needed, yes, part Jesus, but you also needed religious ceremony called circumcision added to it. And that is a terrible distortion of the gospel, for which hopefully you understand as you've been studying with us Galatians, that Paul was up in arms about. This book, Galatians, is Paul's most, most cutting, most biting, most confrontational, most direct book that he ever wrote in the New Testament. He's pulling no punches because he wants them to see the danger of gospel distortion. He wants them to know how badly they need Jesus. And a gospel that adds works to Jesus doesn't save but damns to hell. And that's, we learn, the emphasis of this passage. Distortion of the gospel carries serious warnings. Distortions of the gospel also contrast settled or spirit-wrought waiting. A distortion of the gospel conflates suitable working. Hopefully we will learn that as we look at this paragraph Paul tells them that there are serious warnings in verses 2, 3, and 4 that comes across. I mean, notice his language in verse number 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you. He is asserting his apostolic authority. This isn't some fly-by-the-night, self-ordained, mama-called-daddy-sent person who's telling you this truth. This is the apostle Paul. And he says, look, or don't miss this. In fact, the NIV gives a good translation, I think, of the concept. Paul is saying, mark my words. Mark my words. This is so very important. These are serious warnings when you add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, A first warning, we might say, is of a troubling nullification. If you accept circumcision 
as a means by which you're going to be justified. He says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's a serious warning that we would do well to heed. That if you think that you can earn your way up to God and moralize your way to heaven and be good enough on the scales of God's justice, if you think that, then you are completely and totally nullifying the work of Christ. He says Christ will be of no profit to you. If you, if you mix in a little bit of works and getting what you deserve to add to grace. The older I get, uh, thankfully be able to report this, the older I get, the less I crave desserts, the less I like sweets. I never would have thought that about myself, but the older I get, the more I just like a good hearty plate of food. Give me some fried pork chops and some rice and tomatoes and some gravy and some cornbread and I'm as happy as pig and slop. I, I don't crave sweets as much as I used to. But I, but I still have one area of weakness and that is carrot cake. I still cannot turn down carrot cake. Kristen made some last week for Easter. But I, I don't know. For me it's carrot cake. I don't know what your favorite dessert is or what your weakness is when it comes to food or whatever. But... But let's say that you're, you're really, really hungry. You want a snack, and you need something to sustain you. And, and you walk into the kitchen, and there it is. That thing that you like most, that, that cookie or that cake or that pie or that dessert or that piece of meat or food or whatever. But, but if somehow, imagine that if just three little drops of cyanide poison somehow had been incorporated into that or or I looked at that carrot cake and I'm starving to death and I really want to indulge and take a bite and enjoy it. But, but somehow it came to my attention that, that all the ingredients, I mean, you've got the sugar, you've got the flour, you've got the sliced up carrots, you've got the delicious cream cheese icing and all the rest. But, but, but there was one little problem with it. It's just got one tiny little drop of cyanide poison in it. You would be foolish no matter how hungry you might be. You would be foolish to take and to eat that cake or that snack or that cookie. Why? Because even just the smallest amount of poison incorporated could kill you no matter how good the rest of the ingredients are. You know, it's like something that happened in China not long ago. A man got mad at society and he worked in a, a drink packaging plant. And to express his anger with society, he started putting rat poison into the drinks, these energy drinks. And so people were drinking these energy drinks, thinking it's going to give me energy. And it ended up killing a couple of them and putting several others in the hospital. You might look at your salvation and you might think, Jesus is the sugar. Jesus is the icing. Jesus is the good desserts. But maybe I need to contribute a little more to what Jesus has done. That is rat poison to salvation. Paul says... If you accept circumcision as a means of your justification or substitute it for our time and day, if you accept baptism as a means of your justification, if you accept church membership as a means of your justification, if you accept law-keeping as a means of your justification, Christ is of no advantage to you, no, no value 
It's like you would be walking up to the cross and saying, no, thank you, God. I'll handle it myself. But if you look at the cross, does it not, friend, if you look at the cross, does it not say to you that God in Jesus Christ had to do what you never could do? Look at the bleeding, blessed corpse of the Son of God with the thorns on his brow and the spear in his side and the nails in his hands and his feet. And you tell me you could add to that. He says Christ would be of no advantage to you. That's a troubling nullification of the grace of God. But there's also carrying with it a titanic obligation. Look at verse number 3. I testify again, as if he says, if you didn't get it the first time. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, as a reminder, accepts circumcision as a means of your justification. If you think that religious ritual is making you right with God, I testify to you that if that is the case, it's not just the ritual, but it's what the representation is made by the ritual. He is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, some of them might have been thinking, all I got to do is get the foreskin of my reproductive organ sliced off. In the Old Testament, what that represented was you need to be made new. You got your sin nature from your daddy. The organ of reproduction is the organ of the reproduction of the sin nature as well. And what circumcision ritualistically, theologically, represented was you were born into sin. You need to be born again. It's precisely what baptism represents now. Circumcision pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ in the shedding of blood. Baptism points back to his cleansing work. But Paul points out that if you invert the order, if you say it is not being made new and then obeying the law, if you think it is obeying the law and that's what's going to bring about me being made new, he says, I need to tell you it's not just the ritual, but it is the obligation that follows the ritual to keep, what are the next three words, class? The whole law. Which means, if you're going to be saved by goodness, you can't just be saved by goodness, friend. It's perfection that God's going to ask of you. If circumcision were a necessary prerequisite to justification, then all that it represented is too. That is his argument. There's some fine print that comes along with circumcision that says, You've got to, if you accept this as a means of justification, you've got to keep the rest of the law that is entailed in it. There was a, there was a rookie pilot I heard about, and he had not had a lot of experience flying. He's flying his little prop plane around town, and he was approaching the airport. He's getting ready to land, and it was some cloudy, overcast weather. And he started flying through the clouds, and he, there was zero visibility. And the control tower was speaking with him, kind of guiding him in, and and as, as they spoke with him, they could tell that this pilot was, was panicked almost. He was afraid you, could, yeah, you would be too probably if you couldn't see five foot in front of you. And they detected the fear in his voice. And the flight instructor, the, the man who was guiding him, told him as he's flying through the clouds, he said, listen. He said, you just follow my instructions and let me worry about the obstructions. You follow the instructions, 
I'll worry about the obstructions. God's holy law and the Ten Commandments is one of those two for all of you. It is either an instruction if you're saved today or it is an obstruction if you are lost today. you got to keep those clear in your head. If you belong to the Lord, then the law is good in that it instructs you in the way you should go. But if you have not been born again, if you're not saved, hear me today. The law of God is not an instruction on how to save yourself. It is an obstruction by which you can never, ever be saved. If you think you're going to land safely in heaven because you can tell God how good of a person you are, then I've got bad news. You are flying blind today. The law of God is a huge barrier around heaven, around glory for you that you can't get over. It's not instruction for salvation. It's an obstruction to salvation. It doesn't say be good. It doesn't say be decent. It doesn't say let your good outweigh your bad. The law of God says be you therefore perfect. Are you perfect? Are you perfect? Then you're not good enough to get into God's heaven. Paul warns them that if they accept circumcision, they are obligated to keep the entire law. And as one Puritan said one time, the law of God is a spotlight, not a mop. Turns the light on and lets you see how dirty the room is, but it can't clean the room up. It's like the, it's like the dentist's mirror that he sticks in your mouth, the law of God is. It can reveal the cavities in the back of your mouth because you ate too much carrot cake. But it can't fix the cavities, can it? And every bit as foolish as it would be for a dentist to try to fix your cavities by the mirror, so more foolish it would be for you to think that you can get into God's heaven because you deserve to be there because you're a good person. If you're not a perfect person, then you must have a perfect savior verse number four tells us that without a perfect savior you have a terrible alienation a terrible alienation you are notice this language in verse four you are severed from christ you who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace notice this term severed from christ it's a word play on circumcision itself, they were thinking, I am connected to God because some foreskin has been severed from my body. And he says, actually, if you think that you're justified by your good works, then you are actually severed from Christ. Uh, you're cut off from your hope of salvation. If you do not have the whole Christ and only Christ, you, he says, have fallen away from grace. I just need to mention this in passing. Verse number four is the subject and has been in, in the past of much debate and, and much misinterpretation, I would say, because there are, there are some Christians who read verse number four, especially this phrase, you have fallen away from grace, to cite as a proof text that one might lose their salvation. 
um, it is said that Paul wrote, you have fallen away from grace, which means that a person who is a Christian under grace can then fall away and lose that standing of grace. And they might conclude from that you can lose your salvation. But notice that this verse, verse number four, has a very specific context that actually reveals the proper meaning. It is not telling us that a saved or justified person can be unjustified and fall from a state of grace. You're falling from grace is not referring to a person who is in a state of grace or in a state of salvation. Rather, verse number four is showing that an unjustified person can seek justification by works. And if they do so, they are abandoning the gospel of grace. It's not talking about the grace of salvation that is in you that they're falling away from. He's saying your hope of salvation that is the gospel preached of grace outside of you is being abandoned. You're walking away, that is, from God's offer of eternal love. You're falling away from God's offer of grace. And in doing so, you cut yourself off from Christ. A terrible, a terrible alienation. Some serious warnings, aren't they? That gospel distortion carries. But let us hurry to say gospel distortion doesn't just carry serious warnings, but it contrasts spirit-wrought waiting. Verse number 5 says, For through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. Paul says we are eagerly, that means anticipating, Christians, true Christians who are born again, are like kids on Christmas Eve awaiting something, Paul says. No, kids can't sleep on Christmas Eve. They can't wait to wake up and see what Santa brought them or what kind of gifts are under the tree or what's waiting in the living room. They're eagerly waiting. They can't wait. They're exciting. And Christian, there's something you ought to be eagerly awaiting to, looking forward to. What's Paul call it in verse number five? The hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness. Now, I read that verse and I thought to myself, now wait a minute. S something doesn't square in my theology here. We're waiting on the hope of righteousness. What is that all about? Because doesn't the gospel say to me that I already have righteousness? Doesn't it? Doesn't the gospel say that I have already been deposited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus? God treats me as if I had obeyed every law of God because God sees the obedience of Jesus credited into my account. That is what the Bible calls imputed righteousness. God has given me the righteousness of Jesus. It is already mine. That's what the term justification means. I have been justified. Present, past, and future. I have been, I am, and I shall be. Because I have Jesus' righteousness. It's already realized. But here's where we distinguish between imputed present righteousness, listen now, and future practiced righteousness. Future practiced righteousness. Because don't you know that what is true of you forensically is not always true of you functionally? God says in Jesus, you are perfect, but you say, oh Lord, I am so far from perfect. And this verse is saying, yes, but one day what is true of you forensically, inwardly, will be true of you practically and functionally. That is, 
One day, the righteousness of Jesus that is already in your account will be the perfection of righteousness confirmed in glory. What I'm trying to say is one day, you and I are going to be perfect. Perfect. Never struggle with sin again. Never fight with temptation again. Never face the uncertainty of whether or not I'm going to obey God again or not. Hey, there's coming a day when if you are in Christ, not only will you not be able to sin, you will be able not to sin. You won't sin. You won't be able to sin. And here's the good news, child of God. You won't want to sin anymore. Isn't that good news? You won't want to sin anymore. Paul says, boy, when I think about that, I am eagerly, eagerly awaiting. And here is where you and I discover such power unto obedience, unto God-glorifying obedience. There's two ways you might come to think of it. You might take the attitude, I'm going to make my righteousness happen now in my own strength. Or you might say, because I'm eagerly awaiting the hope of righteousness, I have the indwelling power through the Spirit of God to wrestle against sin here and now. And looking forward to what I shall be one day, God help me, listen now, to be what I ought to be now. Looking forward to what I shall be one day, God help me to be what I ought to be now. So Christian, put on that breastplate of righteousness. Take out the sword of the Spirit. Stand in the shoes of the cleats of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Fasten on that belt of truth. Put on that helmet of salvation and stand against the flaming arrows of the wicked one. For you eagerly await the hope of righteousness. It's a contrast between spirit-wrought waiting in hope. And self-driven, flesh-wrought, law-keeping, hoping to be saved that way. Well, there's one more thing we might say about gospel distortion. Not only does it contrast spirit-wrought waiting and carry serious warning, but it conflates suitable working. Uh, That is proper obedience. Verse number 6. It gets it in the wrong order is what I'm trying to say. The false teachers were saying... You obey in order to be justified. Paul says in verse number 6, no, you obey because you've been justified. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, when it comes to your salvation, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what really does honor the Lord? Faith that works through love. Faith that works through love. Um. I've never been good at math at all. I've never been very good at math. But one equation I heard really helps to give good perspective on salvation. You know, all the religions of the world, every religion on planet Earth has something to say about this equation. And and the three factors of the equation are faith, justification or salvation, and good works. All the other world religions outside of Christianity will say faith plus good works equals salvation. 
Look at all the world religions in the world. That's what they'll tell you. Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, everyone have some form of this kind of gospel. Faith in some Lord or some God plus good works, obedience, morality equals salvation or justification. That's what they'll tell you. Except the Christian gospel. It's completely different. Same three factors, faith, salvation, and good works. Only good works is on the other side of the equation. That is, faith, says the Bible. Faith, says Christianity. Belief in Jesus. Faith equals justification, salvation, plus good works. That is, if your faith is true, if your faith is saving, then you are saved by that faith in Jesus. And that faith in Jesus implants a love for God within you that will necessarily work and honor the Lord. That's what he means. Faith working through love. It could be subjective or objective. That is, our faith works because of God's love for us, which is true. And our faith works because of our love for him. So if you love the Lord today, then may it show up in a life of good works, of obedience. Not earning justification, but flowing out of justification. And dear church, May we never, ever, ever distort or depart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's serious warnings, there's spirit-wrought waiting, and there is suitable working that a distortion of the gospel conflates. Amen? Let us pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and may we indeed be people known of good works.